you know, that was 1988, 88, 98, 2008, like 25 years ago. And I'm still walking around with Calvin inside me. And I'm sure I, there's so many more people that I had very profound experiences with. But it's just the nature of the human heart that you can't, you just can't hang on to all of it. That was Ed Wolf. Ed is an educator, trainer, writer, and a storyteller. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, we feature educators, artists, bartenders, and other San Franciscans talking about living, working, and doing their thing here. It's a way to get to know your neighbors. Welcome to episode 39, part two. In part one, Ed told stories on and around mass transit. In this podcast, he tells a couple of stories of remarkable individuals he came into contact with when Ed worked at SF General Hospital's Ward 5A. Here's Ed. You know, I worked on 5A at the AIDS unit for um, about three and a half years. And, and you know, I mean, you can just imagine what the doctors, the nurses, the counselors, what all of us looked upon regularly, trying to help, trying to um, make a difference in a time when there was just so, so little that could be done. And then again, you know, you have to have very good boundaries because you're going to burn out. You never, like, you never, like, give patients your home phone number. You never, like, follow up with people. You, like, you never give give patients money like you stay boundaried you stay in your role and you help them by being the the kind professional delivering the service you're supposed to and not stepping out of that role and there was a homeless man with AIDS who came into 5A over and over and over again his name was Calvin and he was such an extraordinary character and difficult and sweet and manipulative. And I was fairly new to the unit. And um, he could see I was new. And, you know, uh, he, was in ch- he was very charming. And on right the day before he was discharged, he asked me if he could please borrow $5. And I'd been through all the orientation. And like, other than giving a patient your home phone number, the last thing you do is give them money because then they're going to start asking everyone. But you know what? Like, no one was looking. And my heart went out to him. I didn't know where he was going to go. So I gave him $5. So a couple months goes by. And I get this message from the the ward clerk who sits at the front desk where all the people come in. And she goes, um, Ed, Ed, there's, there's, 
there's someone here to see you. Which is like, people don't come like, what? She said, yes, there's somebody here at the front desk to see you. I said, okay. We had little beepers, and then I, I come down, and there's Calvin. And he's standing there. He's got a T-shirt that's barely on him. It's torn, and he only has one shoe on. And in his hand, he has $5. And I, um, you know, by now, like, this is all happening in front of nurses. Like, people are like, because they all know Calvin. They're looking at me. They're looking at Calvin. And he hands me, he reaches this $5 out. So... My initial reaction is like, of course, I cannot take this money from this man. But then a larger part of me was like, realize what it took for him to come all the way back and pay me back. Because when I gave him the money, he said, I will pay you back. And... And so I just said, hi, Calvin, how, you know, how are you? And he said, well, things are, things are going okay, but, and I wanted to give you this money back. And um, I just remember I went up, he gave me the money, like all the nurses were like, because I'm, I'm not a nurse, I was one of the counselors on the unit. So I know they were watching what was happening. But thank God, anyway, I had the wherewithal to take that money because I could see in his eyes how much this meant to him that he could pay me back. He came back onto the unit several times before he finally passed. And on the unit... Uh, we used to keep what we called the big red book. It's this thick, thick book, like bigger than a phone book. And in it, we kept a list of all the people who died on the unit, like pages and pages. And if people sent back a card or a mother lost her son and was especially... Um, grateful to us and sent a thank you card we put it in this book in fact this book is now part of the hormel collection at the library and you can go and see it but you have to put on like white archival gloves and you know it's amazing but when calvin died on the unit you would you would write the name of the patient and the date that he died and any little tidbit of information that people could remember about him. And several people wrote after his name that, uh, you know, Ed Wolf <laughs> loaned him $5, and before he died, he repaid him. I'm remembering, I was earlier thinking about Calvin and that, that boy with the positive result. I was working on the AIDS unit, and um, mostly we saw people on this 20-bed unit. But when the census was high, there would be 
people with AIDS on other units and they would, the word was out that on 5A, there were people there that you could call. So I would go visit people and once I got a call to go up to the locked unit. So at San Francisco General on the seventh floor, uh, they have four locked units for people who are either a harm to themselves or others or just need a time out, you know. And so there was a gay-focused one. So somebody said, oh, could you come up and see this young man? He has AIDS. He's on the, on the gay locked unit. So I went, sure. So I went up, and I went into this room, and there was this so sweet, so young boy sitting on this bed, and he's got his arm in his cast. And, and so I just sat down, and I said, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm doing great. And I was like, wow, you're doing great, and you're in a locked unit, and you got a broken arm. He said, oh, my God, yes. He goes, you know, I was come from Texas. I come from Texas, and I... Um, came out to my parents, so this would have been 86, it's about 88, 89. I came out to my parents and they kicked me out. And so I got some money together and got a bus ticket to San Francisco and got here and, you know, it was hard. I lived on the street and had a lot, but, you know, at least I was here and then I started not feeling well. I had this terrible cough and I came here to the hospital and they told me I had AIDS, pulmonary KS, and I have about three months to live. And I, I was like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? So we got on a bus, took it out to the Golden Gate Bridge, walked out into the middle of the bridge, jumped, got on the railing and jumped off. So I was like, oh my God. And I'm trying to keep my neutral stance, but you know, how many times can you sit and talk to someone who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge? So I said, in my best counselor thing, I was like, well, what, what, what was that like? That he was like, well, I'm, uh, first I have to tell you, people tell you when you jump off of something like that, you pass out before you hit the bottom. That is not true. He said, the minute I jumped off, I went, oh my God, what have I done? And he said, it takes about, I think he said it took 40 seconds. It takes about 40 seconds. And he said, I knew all the way down what I had done. And then it's like running into a brick wall. And he said, I passed out. And then I was like, well, then what happened? He said, well, next thing I open my eyes and I'm looking up and there's all these men in uniform looking down at me and I'm on a boat. And one of them goes, son, you are so lucky that the Coast Guard just happened to be out here and they had seen him jump and they picked him up. He was the sixth person at that time that they knew of who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. So they bring him to San Francisco General. He's got a broken arm and um, that's it. So he turned this event into a miracle from God.
that he had jumped off the bridge and lived, that there must be some purpose for him. And here's the irony, of course, is that when we were talking about homeless people, people don't give a damn about homeless people unless, this is true now, but especially back then, if you have AIDS, the golden arches of services become available to you because you don't want people with AIDS out on the streets and like creating situations where the virus could be transmitted. So this guy suddenly now, he had a place to live. He had people who would bring food. He had someone like me who would go, hi, how are you doing? So he became like a an HIV AIDS educator and it was amazing. He eventually came onto the unit and died of AIDS. But, um, but it was a total and complete miracle how it instigated him and the fact that he jumped off the bridge and lived amazing I don't remember his name anymore but he certainly is someone someone that has stayed stayed with me so you know I hang on to Calvin and I hang on to that young black student and um, you know I wonder how he is and I would think he lived, this would have been, that would have been maybe 89, but he might have lived long enough to see the, the treatments. And he may be out there somewhere, you know, happily married now to someone and doing well and being a long-term survivor. And I hope that's the case. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald, a.k.a. Joe Bigale. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Please follow Storied San Francisco on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website, which has all the episodes and photos of storytellers, is storiedsf.com. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show. If you have comments and suggestions, please email us at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Check back tomorrow to hear Ed's stories of moving to San Francisco just before the AIDS epidemic hit.